0: podcast. Recorded at WeWork in Midtown Toronto, this is E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed, hosted by Adam Leventer. E2 is the podcast where great entrepreneurs tell their story.
1: Hey guys, welcome back to the podcast. This is E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed. Thank you so much for tuning in. We speak with all kinds of unique and very interesting individuals in the world of entrepreneurship. E2 is brought to you in part by Owner. With Owner, you can run a name search, register, incorporate your business, and even create a custom logo in just a few minutes. Make your business official at owner.co, that's O-W-N-R.co. Use the code E250 at checkout for $50 off. My guest today is Alon Ozeri. Alon co-founded Ozeri's Pita Break in 1996. It began as a small sandwich shop making homemade pitas, but the bakery has grown to become a leader in the natural bakery industry in North America with customers such as Whole Foods, Costco, large coffee chains like Starbucks, and all major Canadian groceries. With approximately 200 team members and growing, Ozeri's is looking to expand its social impact in the near future. They recently co-founded Parallel, a sesame butter tahini North American brand, and an Israeli restaurant featuring tahini. Sorry about that, guys. In this episode, Alon and I talk about marrying an early passion with entrepreneurship, mixing family and business, getting into Starbucks and how they did that, and what's next in the changing world of food. So without delay, here we go, my very fun chat with Alon Ozeri.
2: In Canada, we were Peter Break until two years ago. In the US, we launched it as Ozeri Bakery, I'd say five years ago, um, and now kind of... Uh, amalgamated the two names or into one name uh, after our last name uh, as Ozeri Bakery. Uh, Because Pita Break was a little limiting for us and um, kept us in a specific segment of bakery which we wanted to break away from.
1: Okay, Uh, that seems like actually a really interesting place to start. So 20 years in business under the Pita Break brand. And everyone kind of recognizes the logo. If you Google Peter Break and you see the packaging and the logo, the circle and, and the happy face, and mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a recognizable brand. What was the thinking in 2016 when you decided to make that shift?
2: So, um, yeah, I agree with you uh, that it was recognizable. But we, we found that many of our customers and uh, we, we sell, like you said, in, in major supermarkets around Canada and the U.S. now, too. Uh, But in Canada, under the Pita Break name, people carried our products in their bread buns or in their freezers, yet they didn't know the name of our company. They could not say uh, the name of the company. So it was a great, uh, a huge weakness for our brand. And uh, that was one thing. Uh, The name Pita Break was also confused with our, uh, with other Pita manufacturers, both in Canada and the US. So we, we, we knew we needed to change the name. but. Did it only when we felt secure um, in our ability to invest in the new brand, and that happened about two and a half years ago, or even three years ago, uh, and that has proved to work very well for us today. Uh, people are a lot more familiar with our brand, and and um, it's growing as as time progresses with a lot, of, with quite a lot of investment, but still um, much much better known than Peter Break.
1: Got it. So. Let's rewind back to when the company was founded in 1996. Where does the, first of all, two-part question, where does the passion for baking come from? And the second part of that question is, how did you develop this business entrepreneurial venture uh, that married with that passion to start this business?
2: Uh, So I'm part Israeli-Yemenite. So my father is from a Yemenite Jewish family uh, who lives in Jerusalem. And, and half British. Uh, so our mother was from England and they met in Canada. And then we were raised in Israel for a good chunk of our youth. And our, our childhood was uh, filled with uh, family gatherings and having all the old Yemenite ladies um, make food for the clan. And part of that making food was baking fresh pitas every time. Uh, and that and that was like magic to me. I, I really loved the, the smell of the fresh bread. Uh, I loved the the fact that Making fresh bread brought people together, and literally when you started baking, people appeared in the kitchen and stood around and wanted to taste that warm bread. And that, that was uh, very attractive to me, and I, I learned how to make pita from my aunts. And then I, as a teenager, I bought um, a kind of a home, home little home oven uh, that could uh, make flatbreads. So I used to make flatbreads for, for fun. Um, so that, that came from over there. And when I went to Ryerson, uh, which is a university in Toronto uh, in hospitality, I uh, thought of writing a business plan and, and, and eventually executed it in combining three ideas. One was the pitas, which uh, were part of our my, my, my history and my family background. Uh, secondly were the Subway sandwich concept where you could uh, make a sandwich with a variety of ingredients in them. And the third concept were at the time there were all these bagel stores that were making a variety of bagels and selling them to the public and all were seeing great success it's oddly enough now you don't see those bagel stores around anymore since uh, gluten became uh, the villain and <laughs> and now has disappeared that, that that phase is going away too so bread is back um, so I, I put those three together and, um, and and wrote the business plan at school and um, then used that to Borrow money and uh, go and open a seven hundred square foot store uh, with my father, who wasn't in the in the food business, and uh, basically scraped fifty thousand dollars that he had. We we were not from a family with money or wealth, and at age he was age sixty, uh, I was twenty six, and we opened the business together and um, went for it.
1: When did your brother Guy? Join the equation
2: guy joined maybe three years after when uh our when we started venturing into wholesale so we reached uh, the point where our store did very well and mm-hmm. uh, we had lineups through the door we're not making great money because we we didn't charge enough money which is i think a huge um issue for many young entrepreneurs or beginning entrepreneurs where they just want to see people buy their product or use their services and and think that price is the major, uh, is the main, I guess, um, reason or, or influencer on, on people's buying patterns. So I always thought, oh, we can't charge too much for this. Yet we made everything by hand and created everything uh, custom. And uh, it turns out we didn't charge enough. But so three years into the store, uh, we were really busy, but we were not making great money. And we said, what's next? And uh, the wholesale bakery uh, idea uh, jumped up because people were buying our breads. They were very unique and very different, and people were shopping for them uh, coming from far away to our store to buy it. And that's when Guy joined us. And uh, when Guy joined, my father took a couple steps back.
1: I had this topic as further down the line, but you brought it up, so I've got to continue with it. The partnerships and family dynamic. How do you guys ensure that business conflicts or a difference in approach be it externally or internally doesn't disrupt the family dynamic and affect things on a personal level?
2: Uh, I think think that's a great question and uh, we're I'm very uh, when people ask me if they should go into business with family I am very uh, I warn them uh, uh, to make sure what their priorities are for us the family unit is the most important is more important than business and even even though Guy and myself are very different people and uh, think differently, and and we have had uh, tremendous disagreements, uh, more so in the past. Today we've learned to work out our differences in a very civil manner. Uh, but uh, in the past it wasn't as easy. But what kept cl- kept us together were were uh, uh, we had family dinners every Friday night where. Uh, with our parents and uh, families and kids and extended family uh, always met and even though we'd re- be really ticked at each other uh, during the week or may have had a strong disagreement friday night we get together sit around the table and, and you kind of remember what's important and i think what was important for or what contributed to the success was the fact that both of us were willing away willing to walk away from the business if we thought it will hurt our personal relationship uh too too much so yeah and we fully trust each other and uh like guy guy does things that i have no clue in in the business and and i trust him fully i mean we sit and he fills me in and 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 vice versa also but uh, it gives us the ability to to push forward and 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 have someone have our back so it worked for us but i know too many there are too many examples of families that being right was more important than being close or or uh, I guess uh, money was more important than being close. So
1: uh, and so that's so interesting the uh, and there's I'm sure there's advantages right and, and trust you hit on trust as being a, a key one. and I would agree with that. You mentioned that you've learned you and Guy have learned to navigate these disagreements uh, in a more productive manner now than when you started. How did you guys learn to navigate those waters? Was it just sort of trial and error or did you have business coaches or mentors help you guys through this?
2: Yeah, I'd say uh, both. We, a, it's trial and error. And uh, you realize that, I mean, having a d- strong disagreement doesn't really resolve anything. It just causes more problems. Uh, so we did bring in, I'd say, several business coaches that specialize in helping partners resolve issues. I don't think one, any one of them resolved all the issues, but uh, definitely we, we took a little from each of the business coaches, and that contributed. So uh, I think the most important uh, thing was to have very defined areas of responsibility. For us, we need to agree on strategy, and once strategy is agreed on, each of us goes and pushes within their department and w- within their responsibilities, and having, I guess, certain. Points where we need where we bring each other in just to put the to agree and the, and, and continue pushing forward. So, that that was the best way to do things and um, seems to have worked uh, very well.
1: Got it. Um, I want to go back to something you said earlier about the business plan at Ryerson. I had researched and, and found something along the lines of this business plan that you had written won first place in a contest yeah and it kind of it kind of got me curious to thinking, did that first place help you raise some additional financing behind uh, beyond the fifty thousand that you got from your father? Did it provide any benefit whatsoever? Was it just like a nice trophy to have?
2: well, um the business we did get a loan for a hundred thousand dollars in addition to the fifty thousand dollars from the bank uh, that was under a special small business plan uh, where um we are we were liable for a third of that amount and you pay a little higher interest uh, when you when you paid off but and that kind of finances the whole program but the winning first place what it did prove to me i was a very average student not the not the best not the brightest in any way but i did realize that when i did something that i believe in and have passion in i i take first place and i can succeed very very well and so even so, that wasn't a lot of money. I think it was three, three hundred bucks maybe, and we probably drank off the proceeds the next night. Um, <laughs> not, not, probably. We did. Uh, so the guy who wrote the business plan with me, basically, is today one of my best friends. He happens to be Ger- of German descent. I, I'd say I did eighty percent of the work because it was uh, it was my passion, and I, I I still tell remind him today that. Uh, his only A plus that he got uh, at school was because of me, and um, <laughs> today he he does he's doing really well. He lives in Maui. He runs a boutique, a super successful boutique hotel, and I, I visit them every year. So it uh, kind of worked out well.
1: That's very cool. So as part of the business plan, what was the long term vision? Was it to become this international? Uh, Success story selling through Whole Foods and Costco operating out of an 80,000 square foot facility with 200 plus employees. Was any of that in the mix or was it much more short term focused?
2: Um, yeah, it was much, much shorter term. and um, I think I, I never imagined we'd reach the size we reach today. and today knowing what we know, I'm by, by the way, we're targeting uh, double growing our business, uh, doubling it within four years. So we have very exciting times ahead of us, too, uh, but this would be more intentional. But at the time, the passion was for the product, so it was more micro. I think because we focused on product, on quality, on innovation, that was our driver for growth. There were no other companies making products like ours or who had the attention to detail that we did. The market was ready. We were also fortunate at the time, but market market was ready for it, and demand kind of grew our sales. So that's what helped us discover the possibilities. I, I never thought we'd be in Costco, Whole Foods, I mean Starbucks, uh, North America, we, we have products in every Starbucks probably in North America and, and that's quite outstanding um, and never, I never expected that to happen. That, that kind of happened with time and the market showed us that it wants our products.
1: I want to ask about Starbucks. What was the moment that that happened and how did that all go down?
2: So I think it's we were not targeting Starbucks necessarily, but we invested a lot of money in participating in very uh, interesting food shows or food uh, expos in the U.S. There are two, three major ones that we go to. Uh, One's the Natural uh, Expo, uh, Natural and Organic Expo, which is uh, on the West Coast in Anaheim and sometimes in the in the spring. And there is the one in the fall in Baltimore, or the East Coast. And then there's Fancy Food Show, which is in San Francisco and New York. And buyers just walk those shows. So we, we didn't know much, but we bought a 10 by 10 foot area, created a stand and presented our foods. Um, you have h- hundreds, if not thousands of presenters. So you make sure you go into what's new, what's ex- is exciting. And, and put your products there. And a lot of product developers who work for these uh, chains and, and companies uh, walk down the aisles looking for something new and unique. Uh, that's how we met a bunch of, of customers, including buyers from Starbucks or or actually product developers for Starbucks who got excited about one of our products a while back and, and then asked for samples. I think after that we, we have good relationships with a bunch of, of these chains because our, our response time to them is very quick. Basically, whatever they ask, we will do our best to make it happen because that drives also innovation on our end. The moment we are aggressive about listening to our customer and it does, again, doesn't have to work out and, and that's okay if it doesn't, but it pushes us to try new things and, and break our existing paradigms on how things are done. And that's usually how we see how we see interesting stuff uh, come to life is when things that we don't expect happen. We just have to keep our senses open to to see what happens once we do it.
1: That's so cool. The um, The spotting what's next thing seems like a, a superpower for you guys, spotting the next trends. You guys have come up with the morning rounds and then the thin sandwich buns, which even I eat my hamburgers with today. Mm-hmm. How do you guys spot What's next in a category that um, a layman might not think is a place to innovate?
2: Uh, I think that uh, we we travel, uh, we enjoy food, and I think it's within our DNA not to be a a me too company. and uh, so if anybody asks us to make something that already exists out there and it's kind of boring, we would kind of kind of decline uh, and, and not be interested. but Within our DNA, uh, we, I was just in right now in, uh, with my team. So with our VP of development and, and with a very high-end consultant that we, we've, uh, not consultant, someone who's helping us uh, grow our business. I was, we were in an eight-day trip to Turkey and Israel. And all we did was travel and check out bakeries and eat at restaurants and food, looking for things that will be interesting. And it's not only within flatbreads, but you look in sourdough, you just look at a whole lot of areas and find elements within certain areas that excite us and try and um, introduce them to our realm. May It be flatbreads or crackers or whatnot. As long as that's within your culture and you invest time and energy in it, um, interesting things happen and and you're able to break the the mold on that. Because you're right, bakery is not that exciting, but it allows a company that thinks differently to succeed in it, I think.
1: So um, going back to something you said earlier about the whole gluten-free movement in the mid to late nineties, when you guys started, there was a big demand for baked goods, right? And then yes. Um, now there's, well, now it might be coming back, but for a period of time there, it felt like uh, you guys were under pressure with the whole gluten-free, wheat-free movement where are things heading next do you think
2: so I'll just go back to that because uh, the bakery world was heavily like hurt by it and and you could see it even by look if you look at uh, bakery areas within supermarkets or within even within Costco they have shrunk as a whole the whole footprint for uh, bakery has shrunk since ten years ago I'd say the whole realm is fairly is very competitive and and, and the same number of companies or even more are competing for less space because it's all about real estate within the store. Mm-hmm. Um, so that added uh, kind of uh, more aggressiveness in it. The gluten-free is, uh, I'd say it's definitely plateaued. Uh, I think it's shrinking now also. Today, buyers 10 years ago or five years ago, uh, one of their first questions were, what, what do you have, which is gluten-free? And now, now that, that's definitely not the case. People are realizing a they're not necessarily allergic to gluten, if they eat, uh, uh, I guess, quality breads that don't have a bunch of chemicals in them, made with whole grains. You know, they're they, they're as healthy or more than many of the gluten-free uh, baked goods out there.
0: This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups.
2: Where do I think things are going? I think things are going, I think the healthy aspect is a given today. Today, you need to be, uh, you can't use too many chemicals in your products. We don't use any. But even the, um, the larger companies, the large bakeries are are shying away from chemicals they used to just throw in there just to buy shelf life or softness or whatnot because customers are 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 becoming more savvy and, and they're watching what they put in their body. I mean if you if you put in something like say calcium propionate which is designed to kill mold so they'll put it in in a bread what happens when you put an ingredient that's designed to kill mold and you eat it and consume it and it goes into your gut it won't do your gut too much too good and and, and we know today that our guts are living full of living organisms at, that are all in a very uh, beautiful balance and, and when you introduce chemicals to that that des- are designed to kill bacteria, it will also kill uh, good bacteria. So I'm happy to say that the whole industry is moving to the natural uh, end of things. Organic is quite huge. Today, uh, Whole Foods is, uh, was the leader, but Costco is the biggest seller of organics today. Costco, anything new we make for the U.S. needs to be fully organic uh, certified, which is fantastic for us. So organic is definitely a big thing, and, but it, it needs to be reasonably priced. Uh, I think you can't be too, expensive. people are not willing to pay double. I think up to 20% they're willing to, do, to pay. Um, and then ethnic, interesting ethnic foods are, uh, are fairly big, and I think there's a lot of opportunities there.
1: Is that part of your strategy going forward to double the business? I know you mentioned that a few minutes ago.
2: Um, everything I just mentioned—it is part of our strategy. We're—I mean—there are also other elements that we're implementing and new markets that we're not heavy in. So, yes, definitely.
1: Are you able to disclose some of those details?
2: Well, it's—we're uh, more of a branded company, so I'd say seventy percent of our products are branded on shelves, both in Canada and the U.S. So two two strategies one's an obvious one is to increase our US sales uh there a lot it's 10 times the size of Canada and, and I mean it's basically a similar market in within urban areas so we're we're focusing on the US which is a given secondly food service so we're not huge in food service and there are huge opportunities in there that we think we could do really well in and then obviously new product so you you divide when when you look at growth you you divide Uh, I guess you divide the sums and you look at countries, you look at categories, you look branded versus not branded, new products versus existing products. And then you you, that's how you kind of device your uh, you, you work on your growth strategy.
1: Got it. Let's talk about managing a company with 200 employees and finding the right talent to help you execute on all of these go forward strategies that you mentioned. What kinds of things do you look for? when you hire and, and what's the process by which you guys hire talent uh
2: so we we've learned a lot as we grew and um i, I think until not long ago we were i would say we were not great in hiring people uh, many times we'd promote from within which is a is a great great thing but we were limited by what they knew they knew what they what we knew kind of and it was okay for the growth that we had but if we want to uh, step it up, uh, we needed people that we can learn from and are, are better than us at, at what they do. So we've started uh, a couple of years ago um, hiring people from outside that are, are fantastic. Our leadership team is is growing as we speak. We just hired a new uh, a sales person or a, a director of sales for Canada who seems to be will be very good, and then. You, you you just keep a close eye at them and if they, if it works that's fantastic and if it doesn't work yeah, let them go as soon as you know that there there isn't a fit and then go and look for someone again so I, I somebody mentioned it you know uh, hire slow fire fast mm-hmm. and we're kind of uh, following that not not because we like firing or anything like that but if, it's, uh, if, if the company is not getting what it's supposed to, then neither is the individual, and we might as well sever that relationship quickly and start looking for the right person.
1: How important are the soft skills in the hiring process, and how do you figure out whether or not this leader or this next hire is going to be a good cultural fit within the organization?
2: Uh, so it's a matter of uh, we have, I'd say, three three rounds of uh, interviews. First, uh, the HR department will siphon them but just based on uh, on the resumes or, or working with a headhunter or whatnot. Then they'd come, once they once they pass that first stage, they'll come in to be interviewed by them. Uh, and then they come in to be interviewed again by a second team. And I'd say that Guy and myself will be there just for the third round and there is a fourth round also of uh, key positions within the company hiring other people of key positions. So it's it's quite an extensive process. You know, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but at least we get a lot of input.
1: When you and Guy sit down with a prospective hire, let's say they're um, they're a potential senior hire, mm-hmm. do you have any specific questions that you ask that perhaps the interviewee, doesn't see coming that helps you to assess whether or not they're the right fit?
2: So Guy and I uh, interview separately, and uh, I think it's it's a good way of uh, letting, we, each of us approaches things differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, it's more in form, and, and this is, uh, after a bunch of years, I, I like this, this works for me best, is to sit and, and have a discussion, and have a, con- a conversation, more so, let them talk, and then, as they talk, to pick on specific times and and occurrences, and then and then dig in and dig in and dig in. And then they can't really plan necessarily to answer. I, I want to get them off guard. I want them to feel comfortable on one hand and then to start talking candidly about uh, occurrences. So and then you dig in and dig in and then ask for specifics. like if there was an occasion where there were problems with a superior, Give me an example of what happened and, and, and use the words, ask them to use the words that, that they said during the meeting or that were told to them and get them like, kind of to get them back into that situation. And then you look at them, you look at how they relive that experience. Um, many times they're focused on answering properly. So they go back in time and then their guards are let down a little because they're, they're trying to remember and, and be accurate. And a lot of things will will tell you their body language. You'll see if they're you know if they're uh, overly uh, emotional or overly or whatnot, and 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 you can you can spot things like that. So so that's my way of, of approaching things. Um, and I'd say you know I'd say I have a a sixty or seventy percent rate of success. <laughs> so it doesn't well, always work. You have to hire them and after they pass and then just. Be ready to let them go if it doesn't work.
1: That's still very good, right? That's probably way above the average. It's hard. I mean, it's one of those fine arts, the whole hiring process. You mentioned body language. I thought that was a very interesting point. Just recently had Mark Bowden come on the podcast, who's one of the world's leading experts in body language. And mm. we, talk, we talked all things body language for, for the entire hour. It was fascinating, like how to spot potential deceit and yeah. uh, How to spot authenticity? How to recognize whether or not somebody's you know being truthful? All that
2: stuff. Yeah, I'll, I'll have to listen to it because I'm a, a great. Uh, I find it very interesting, and and I kind of developed uh, uh, things naturally uh, observing body language. But um, I'd I'd really I want to listen to that uh, that interview because people hide things they say, and and not always. I mean, so many times they they things they do say things they don't mean to.
1: When you're thinking about uh, hiring somebody who checks all the boxes from a potential leadership perspective, has the right resume and experience, is a good potential cultural fit. How important is the other stuff that they're working on in their life? Like, do you care whether or not a potential executive has hobbies outside of work, does extracurricular stuff, is, I don't know, part of their community, is philanthropic, all of those things?
2: That's a good question. Uh, I think that at this point, I don't dig into that. But thinking about it now, in retrospect, I would say the people that were most, that fit in the best, did have a strong community uh, connection and, and did contribute and were involved in their community. So that's interesting that you mention it. So I think I'll just write it down and 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 remember to to check that point. But uh, working with us, uh, one of the requirements, I mean, we just let someone go who is a very, again, it's really hard because some people are really nice, but they're just not a fit. Part of what we do uh, involves a lot of community and uh, and working with each other here. I think one of the great strengths of being a privately owned company is you can have years that you're not super profitable and that's okay uh, with Guy and myself as long as we believe that we're moving in the right direction. We don't have to report to a board and we don't have to be at the 10 or 15% EBITDA or whatnot uh, and, and we, we, it would be okay if we're at 7% sometimes. Again, that's not the goal but there are other drivers to life other than uh, the final dollar amount, definitely.
1: I'm curious to ask about your life in Israel and what are I guess the key differences both good and bad with respect to a entrepreneurship or two personal life uh, with life in Israel versus in Canada and is there anything that you miss about life back in Israel?
2: So I think I grew up in Israel uh, I was born in Canada but at age 3 went to Israel and came back at age 16 and then came and went a few times so I'll even add a little another aspect is um, being, uh, having our mother being of English descent from a Protestant family uh, and our father of uh, a Yemenite Jewish Orthodox family. Um, just growing in that family and being exposed to both sides was tremendous. It gives us a, a view, a very wide view of how things are and, um, and different ways of approaching life. Being in Israel I'd say what what Israelis are good at is being very very uh, resourceful and looking I mean not they don't love rules and they will kind of make things happen I, I'd say the, their weaker points are they don't follow rules <laughs> They're very and, 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 and they and so it's harder for them to create and and, and this is very this is generalizing but cre- creating something big and then keeping it going, on for a long time is more against their nature they love innovating they love creating things that are not there they love going against the odds and and making things happen and I think some of that has definitely rubbed off uh, on us on Guy and myself and mm-hmm. um, for us uh, when, when there somebody presents a reality to us where well, the first thing we do is to challenge that reality and um, see if there are other realities that that can be there and usually there are you know, not necessarily what you want to see, but I think if you shake something enough, you you can uh, definitely see things differently. The the beautiful part, and, and I'm kind of veering away from your question, but I think it has something to do with it. The differences between Guy and myself complement each other. So I'm uh, I'm more product development oriented, and 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 don't see reality, and like to create realities and develop things. Guy has, um, even though he's uh, he, he's for all of that. His He's uh, very methodological, uh, uh, he follows, not rules, but creates systems and creates beautiful systems that work for large organizations. And together, uh, I think we complement each other a lot and it works well for us.
1: Yeah, it sounds like a perfect complement, actually, um, him being more methodical and you being uh, somewhat more of a creative type. Yeah. All right. I know we've we've only got a few minutes left, but I want to ask you a couple of last yeah. questions. Upon reflection so so looking back on your trajectory over the last i want to say 22 years if i've got my math right
2: Mm -hmm. it's okay if you shorten it a little
1: (laughs) (laughs) was there anything that occurred early on and, and now looking back you're saying to yourself wow like that one that was really lucky and who knows you know where we'd be if that one thing didn't happen was there a moment like that
2: um, yeah, luck is a huge part of our success, and um, yeah, I don't know if it's one specific thing. We almost went out of business a couple of times going into an industry that we had no clue about. We knew nothing about commercial baking, but not knowing things, also we almost lost everything because of that, uh, uh, but we also created a new, a new way of doing things uh, in many ways. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it was anything specific.
1: The recent venture, Parallel,
2: yes,
1: sesame yes. butter tahini, North American brand, yes. uh, Israeli restaurant featuring tahini. Um, yes. I want to give you the last few minutes to tell us about Parallel.
2: So Parallel is a fan, like, fantastic and exciting new uh, venture for us and uh, us three brothers. So our third brother joined us and he's running it. We took this space down close to downtown Toronto, beautiful industrial space, and created a really nice and inviting industrial restaurant plus uh, tahini factory in there. And we are not a North American brand yet because we just started a few months ago, but uh, we are definitely intending on being one. And um, where sesame seed is the base and where you make uh, either the sesame butter we did things that haven't been done. We created uh, beet sesame butter. We created a smoky sesame butter. And in addition, the natural one. uh, Nobody else that I know of has any products like that. We started making halva, which is a Middle Eastern snack, but we're not using, we're using cane sugar because it's more natural. Uh, We're not using any chemicals in our halva. Most halvas will have certain chemicals that are not declared to make it hard and white. Ours is a little different. And that's just because we didn't know how to make halva and we went and figured it out, but using our own, I guess, uh, values. So we don't use chemicals, we use natural ingredients. And the halva that came out is really tasty. We see this store and restaurant and uh, which, uh, by the way, we, we, we found a fantastic chef named Tomer Markovich. Um, who we are, are partnering up with and um, is a fantastic human being and very talented chef to push Parallel forward. The, the future is yet yet to come, but uh, the sesame butter will definitely be a North American brand. The halva, we, we don't know yet because uh, we have to see how it transports and how we package it. But we have plans for other sesame based uh, snacks ready to launch in the next few years under this umbrella and where we have a fantastic store that's kind of a showcase for all our products. So we were very fortunate with our restaurant and and just two days ago, BlogTO, which is the biggest blog uh, in in, uh, Toronto GTA with um, close to a quarter million people following it, mentioned us as uh, the top hot restaurants in the city right now. And they gave us really good uh, reviews before. Toronto Life has mentioned us this month in June uh, with very favorable responses and and uh, comments, and so did the Toronto Star. So did the CBC, and so did uh, Suresh, the food critic from CBC, which is a fantastic. He he just loves a, a parallel and Tomer. So I I think um, parallel basically uh, what we put into parallel is uh, lessons that we learned over twenty two years how to do things right with brand, how to do things right with product. And it would be interesting to see uh, where it takes us in the next five years. But we think it could be very big and successful and can do, do the world good also on the way.
1: Do you think there are any, I know it's, it's very difficult in 30 seconds or so, are there any brand lessons, principles, call it, call it that, brand principles that you've learned over the years that you now apply to Parallel that you could share with listeners who are thinking oh. about build, building a brand from scratch?
2: definitely I, I think that branding is is so important and and so so few entrepreneurs give it give branding the importance it needs and if you do branding properly from the beginning it just saves you so much work in, down the road of correcting and fixing so my my philosophy when it comes to branding is a when you come up with names for for them not to be prohibitive don't just have a, a kind of a name that's open that's open for you to infuse the name with content and with, with, a, with a message. You don't want them to, to you don't, I wouldn't recommend to have a name that's too descriptive or already has a message because your consumer's minds are the most powerful things. You kind of need to put in your messaging into your brand and then what you want is their minds to interpret it in a positive way but only their minds can interpret them that way. So you need to put in your points and then let their brains do the rest. I, I, I maybe sound as if I'm rambling, but um, if you manage to put in your, positive, your content and have their minds interpret it in their specific way, it's a very powerful way to connect with your end consumer and create that kind of relationship that is based on your intent and their interpretation
1: <laughs> you and i will have to break bread there sometime soon i'll give you the last minute to just tell listeners where they could find out more about parallel and of course more about ozeri
2: uh you'll get all the information parallelbrothers.com you'll get the information about parallel uh, we're on facebook we're on instagram yeah
1: it's all awesome Congratulations.
2: Adam, thank you very much. Let's meet for dinner or something.
0: Thank you for listening and being a part of E2. E2 is brought to you in part by Owner. With Owner, you can run a name search, register, or incorporate your business, or even create a custom logo in just a few minutes. Make your business official at Owner.co. That's O-W-N-R Use the code E250 at checkout for $50 off. Indochino, made to measure suits and shirts at a great price. More at Indochino.com. And WeWork. WeWork is a global network of workspaces where people and companies grow together. WeWork, where businesses thrive. More at WeWork.com. Your positive support means a lot to us. So if you've enjoyed the episode, please leave a positive review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you consume your audio. Until next time, make today count with whatever it is you're working on.